Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us today for a discussion of Biden's bureaucratic plans for American families. My name is Lindsay Burke. I'm the director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Andrea Rosick, who is a senior fellow at CARDIS, a Canadian-based think tank. And prior to joining CARDIS, she was the executive director of the Institute of Marriage and Family Canada, where she studied marriage, childcare, women's issues, and how family life affects the economy and vice versa. So she'll be great to talk with today as we consider the many education components of Biden's, of the Biden administration's American Families Plan. And I would just begin by saying that this plan is extremely heavy on bad education policies starting in the very earliest years. It would spend a combined $425 billion on early childhood education and care, a figure that likely underestimates the actual cost to taxpayers. There is 250 billion for free childcare, 200 billion for free preschool, and then paid family leave. On top of all of that, along with measures such as $109 billion for free community college and other additional major federal spending. The child care proposals deserve particular attention, which is why I'm delighted to talk today with Andrea. So let's get the conversation started, Andrea. I'd like to ask you first a little bit about the experience uh, our neighbors to the north have had with similar proposals. Can you talk a little bit about the Quebec experience with free early childhood education and care? Sure, and uh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here with you today. So. Quebec is a province in Canada. It's Canada's French-speaking province. It's home to Montreal and Quebec City. Beautiful historic cities. I invite you all to come visit. Um, for the purposes of our conversation here today, it is also home to North America's only European-style daycare system. Um, I would highlight the lack of choice that presents for parents and the lack of quality and the rising costs without increasing spaces. but Maybe it'd be useful to talk a little bit about how we got here. So in 1997, over 20 years ago, the province started this system at $5 a day. It has subsequently risen in cost, but the cost to parents was supposed to be highly subsidized and cheap at $5 a day. And the main, well, there are many reasons why it came into being, but one of the big ones was to increase women's labor force participation. And there it definitely succeeded. The data show that more children moved into childcare and labor force participation for women did indeed increase. The question that I have is at what cost did it increase? Um, at my think tank, Cardis, we define childcare as the care of a child, no matter who does it. And we think that when given a choice, parents can make good decisions about work and life and family and most of all, that they don't do so with an eye to increasing labor force participation, but they do so in a way that works for their family. So 
a big concern with the Quebec system is that it did indeed wipe out other choices. And it seems to me that there's a pretty clear economic rationale for that. The government dove in and highly subsidized one form of care and other private offerings crumbled. And the word crumbled, I take from a proponent's literature. A lot of my information about the Quebec system is based in the literature of proponents for the system. So it's not me saying it's this or that happened, but rather people who like the Quebec model have taught me that private choices crumbled. Um, 10 years after they started the system, they had to create an, a tax incentive to bring private providers back in. But even today, there was a recent auditor general's report from the province of Quebec that suggested they struggle with supply and there are shortages. There was also media reports fairly recently from Quebec City of parents who were protesting the lack of access to care. So the other aspect on the care that's offered, which we can talk about a bit more if you like, is the lack of quality. And that again is something that is universally agreed upon. Um, publicly, of course, representatives from Quebec will always say that their system is a huge success. But privately, I have been to childcare conferences where the main point of discussion is the lack of quality. So I think that's something that's important to parents. And um, while we know high quality early childcare has positive outcomes, we also know that the reverse is true. And if we offer poor quality childcare, we can have negative outcomes. The bottom line on the Quebec system is that there are significant issues with it today. Uh, and 20 years in, they haven't been able to resolve those issues. And we need to be asking questions about why those issues persist. Well, that's really helpful. And you said something that I, I think is really spot on that the government chose to subsidize a particular type of care, that being center-based care rather than informal arrangements, family-based care, et cetera. And so, of course, when you subsidize something, you get more of it. So you get more center-based care at the expense, perhaps, of some of these private providers. And Andrea, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure the literature um, it, on Quebec has demonstrated that there was a significant shift from uh, families who were already who already had access to childcare but were using informal arrangements over to the government system once that subsidy came online. Um, so, so that's all really helpful for framing. Can you talk a little bit more about the effects broadly of center-based care on children, what the literature says uh, around that issue? Yeah, just on the point of moving parents into a particular form of care, I think regardless of where this happens, we're concerned about the existing ecosystem of care, what we call the ecosystem of care because it is delicate and exists in different communities in different ways. So there really is a diversity of choices available in the rest of Canada today that may or may not exist in Quebec, although I did speak about the tax incentives to bring back the private providers. Anyways, um, on the move to the center-based options, um, the research on that in Quebec is, I think, fairly damning. Um, Specifically, there are reports, uh, research studies from economists by the name of Baker, Gruber, and Milligan. And these are kind of the big ticket studies on um, examining the Quebec uh, example or the Quebec model. Um, they have done two releases in 2008. They released their first findings and they associated the introduction of Quebec's universal system with an increase in 
um, early childhood aggression and anxiety, so not great news. Um, subsequently, 10 years after that, they released a follow-up study where they found self-reported from teens now a decline in life satisfaction and health. And that particular follow-up study was completely controversial because they also indicated a rise in criminality associated with the program in contrast with other Canadian provinces. So um, I think it's important to mention that Dr. Baker is, is at University of Toronto, mainstream institution, high quality institution. Uh, Gruber's at MIT and um, Kevin Milligan, the other author is at University of British Columbia. This is not fringe research and it's fine to criticize methodology, but I do think that this is peer reviewed research that was published in mainstream academic journals and it's worth paying attention to. Um, and more to the point, it's not just their research. Another Canadian academic by the name of Dr. Stephen Lehrer, he's at Queen's University in Canada. He actually approached the Baker-Gruber-Milligan study with some skepticism. He wanted to see if it held true. And so he did his own follow-up, uh, fairly recent research. And um, he found, and I'll just quote him here, but he said, if anything, he first of all found Baker Gruber Milligan, it's a robust study, he said, and he, he said, quote, if anything in our own work, um, we find that actually the effects get larger over time on average. So he claims the response, the uh, findings from Baker Gruber and Milligan are muted. So again, I think it's worth talking to those academics themselves on how they designed their studies and what they found, but um, that's kind of the Cole's Notes version on some of the negative outcomes for children in Quebec. And I could talk about why that is, what the ratios, the adult-child ratios are in Quebec as contrasted with other childcare in Canada. Um, I think there's, there's a question that I have around whether universality actually breeds poorer quality. Because when something is free or highly subsidized and it's supposed to be universally accessible, I think in many instances, you end up sacrificing quality. And what we know from research is we want all childcare to be high quality. We know that the early years matter. And there's virtually no disagreement on the idea of needing high quality care for little ones. So I'm concerned that when we have big government interventions, um, political pressures mean that quality is sacrificed for availability. Yeah, well said. And, and that's certainly been something that we've seen here as well with the large scale preschool programs. And even among those preschool programs that are ostensibly the, some of the best in the country that are the, the gold standard preschool programs like Tennessee's voluntary pre-K program, even the effects that we see there uh, are not what proponents had hoped to have seen, that we don't see these long-term positive outcomes as a result of participation and, and even some negative behavioral effects in some instances reported by teachers for the children who participated in these programs. And you know, to your point, Andrea, these are rigorous evaluations. These are randomized control trial evaluations of the effects of pre-K on, on children. Then if we look at the childcare sector a little more closely in the US, we see the federal Head Start program, of course, the, the largest federal program pertaining to early childhood care. And unfortunately for participating children, that program has really failed to meet their needs for generations now. This is a program that was put into place in 1965 and year after year, 
the rigorous evaluations show that it has no impact on children's academic outcomes, their emotional uh, well-being, their parents' parenting practices, their access to healthcare, everything that proponents wanted to see as a result of this federal Head Start program, and yet we don't see it uh, in all of the research on the outcomes for participants. And so I do think it's important to see uh, the outcomes of these programs and to think about what some alternatives will be in the case of the American experience and what the Biden administration is proposing, this proposal is for entirely new programs and entirely new and massive amounts of spending at the federal level, right? The level that is farthest removed from the children and family that these programs will impact. And so it is important, I think, to look at the history of the existing programs when there are these tremendous calls for, for new spending. Um, so just wanna put that in context there, you know, if we're gonna see federal action and federal involvement in the early childhood education and care space, I think we need to look first at the existing programs, how funding could be better leveraged that's already being spent before, you know, spending another half a, a billion, you know, half a trillion dollars. The numbers are just massive now on these, these new proposals. And, and that's something to consider, right? With the existing federal Head Start program, a better option would be portability of existing funds instead of relegating participants to uh, low performing Head Start centers, providing families with control over the money that we already spend and allowing them to take it to providers of choice. And in so doing, not only helping families to match options that are a better fit with their children, but to make sure, Andrea, to your point, that that ecosystem of providers is out there, that it's not yes. just that single public program. Uh, so there's not Can only- I just, Sure. Jump in on the on the single public program idea, I guess, and also on the cost. You mentioned at the outset that however many billions or half a trillion or whatever the numbers are, as large exactly. as they are, it's um it's typically not enough. So um, we recently in Canada had a move uh, proposal to move towards the Quebec model for the rest of Canada, and so I did the work with colleagues to cost out the the real costs of that plan. And for whatever amount of billions of dollars is being put forward, uh, we found, you know, fairly unsurprisingly that it's not enough by a long shot. And then this points, I think it's important for listeners to know, and parents in particular, um, you know, at the funding levels we're getting, Canadians are going to be looking at um, either complete lack of access, they'll destroy the existing ecosystem of care and then not be able to access the new program if it's high quality. But more likely, as I already said, it's going to be a low quality system that is broadly accessible. Um, so I think that's troubling for, for parents in particular, for everyone, it should be troubling for everyone. Because again, a point of agreement is we want high quality care. We want her high quality uh, child care because um, the early years matter. So I think those costs, they are very unwieldy and large, but will be larger even so. Yeah, that, that's such an important point. And your point about universality and just the, the scope uh, and size of these programs is really important too. And I, I think that's something that we can take from the literature. If you look at what the proponents of uh, take universal pre-K in this uh, example, you know, they'll often appeal to these very old studies, right? Or programs, the Perry Preschool Project, the Avisarian, yeah. right, program. And you know, these are programs that were conducted and the evaluation started in the 1960s with very small sample size of particular children. In the case of Perry, I think the 
uh, experiment group had 58 children in it. And so uh, there has been a lot of research done on preschool over the years, but proponents continue to appeal to these two very old studies because they did indeed find some positive effects for participants over the long run. Uh, but as many folks have noted over the years, Perry was a very particular intervention. It was a boutique style pre-K program with around the clock services for both children and parents. And so the idea that a large scale universal program would end up looking like Perry is highly unlikely. It is much more likely to look like the federal Head Start program that unfortunately has really uh, failed participating children, as I noted. So, so you alluded to this a minute ago, Andrea, but maybe just you know tease it out a little bit more. Do you see the Quebec experience as a cautionary tale for America? Well, definitely, and I see it as a cautionary tale for the rest of Canada too, since we are currently facing exactly the same issue. Um, on, on the factors that are important to proponents of the Quebec model, it fails. So the quality is absent. Um, and is not accessible. Again, this is a statistic from proponents of the Quebec daycare model, but only 30% of children, they say, have access to the higher quality spots. So that's one in three, it's the minority of kids. Um, I'm concerned it steamrolls the existing diversity, which, you know, we're looking at Quebec is a European style daycare system. Mostly when we talk about the move to universal childcare, we're talking about Sweden and Norway and France, places like that. Um, but the environment there, the history and the culture in Europe is completely different from North America. Um, Quebec has a different culture and history from the rest of Canada. So arguably one could say they would be the best position to experiment with that kind of thing and, and try to find success, which they haven't yet found. Um, but for the rest of North America, I think we were founded on different principles. Um, we have a higher, uh, we cherish diversity and um, choice more than some of these European nations do. And the ability for parents to decide what works for them is a pretty core value for a lot of parents and may or may not be accessible when the government discriminates in who they choose to fund and tells you essentially through their funding that um, this is the kind of care that you're gonna use. So I also laugh a little bit because um, when I hear people reference, we should all be like Norway, uh, so I went off and tried to read and research a bit about Norway. Well, starting point is that the entire population of Norway is the same size as the city of Toronto. So it's really kind of apples and oranges to do a comparison um, and to talk about a place that is likely homogeneous in culture and language, and then also a smaller population than what you're, what we are looking at in the rest of Canada, and certainly what you are looking at in, in the United States. Um, too many questions to get into. When we costed out what um, national daycare would cost in Canada, we ended up producing our report, which I think is available to your listeners today, but it was not just about the costs of national daycare, it was about the complexity of it all. Because there was a lot of factors there to put into a budget for the program. That's a lot of things that the federal government has to get right for the rest of the country. And um, I think it's a big question mark as to whether they can achieve that in countries as diverse as Canada and the United States. Yeah, that's a great point on the complexity of a program like this and the ability for the federal or national government to get it right. Uh, my money would be on them likely not getting it right, unfortunately. I mean, if history is any indication, uh, you know, large scale federal programs tend to, to not uh, manifest the way that proponents want from the beginning. So I think you're uh, very right on that point. 
Well, I'll let you off the hook for just a second, Andrea, and talk a little bit about uh, just quickly the other components, because this is about the overall education components of the Biden administration American Families Plan. And it isn't just early childhood education and care. There's a little bit in the K-12 space, not that much. Uh, there are some teacher training programs uh, that are part of the K-12 component. And then there's also an expansion of free school meals, a continuation of Obama era policies in a way. But where we see another significant spending proposal in this plan is in the higher end realm. As I noted at the top, the Biden plan also includes unprecedented new higher education subsidies, including a $109 billion proposal to finance two years of free community college. We keep hearing this word free, and yet this plan is so expensive. <laughs> so two, uh, two years of free community college at $109 billion, and that would be available to first-time students and to workers who want to reskill. So a couple of points on that. First, it is difficult to see why this is a priority when more than half of students in community college did not pay any part of their tuition and fees under existing federal aid uh, through the Pell Grant program and other aid. And then second, just 20% of students who begin community college each year complete their program within 150% of standard time. So just 20% of students complete a three-year program uh, in the allotted time. Uh, according to, and that's according to the Department of Ed, and even if you factor in transfers from community colleges to four-year colleges, the completion rate only increases to about 34% for community college students. So part of what the Biden administration plan would do is it would try to improve these statistics by sending another $62 billion to community colleges to try to improve those retention and completion rates. But after decades of lackluster outcomes, I, am, uh, uh, I think it's unlikely <laughs> that we will see more federal spending actually improve the performance and uh, improve those statistics, unfortunately. So that's $62 billion on top of the $109 billion that's in that proposal for free community college. Another staggering number uh, in higher ed in this proposal is the $80 billion that's proposed uh, in new spending for the federal Pell Grant program. Uh, the federal Pell Grant program currently stands at $29 billion annually. So that would mean that the maximum Pell Grant award, and again, these are Pell Grants that do not have to be repaid. They are available to income eligible students. So that would increase the maximum Pell Grant award from about $6,400 to almost $8,000, uh, $7,900. So it's a big increase. It's about a $1,400 increase per awardee if this were to become law. So I think what we have to keep in mind is that through all of these proposed subsidies, whether it's the higher ed subsidies from free community college to, to those increases in Pell Grants, um, or the initiatives that they're pursuing to provide more funding in the childcare realm, all of these proposals would just subsidize rising costs rather than actually pursuing policies that would actually address the drivers of those increasing costs over the years. And then um, I would note, I guess, just to tie all of this together that in all, inclusive of the childcare spending, inclusive of the uh, paid family leave components of this, which there was a policy pulse program a couple of days ago with my colleague Rachel Bresler, where they 
addressed in detail the paid family leave components, you add all of it together, it's about $748 billion on education spending in this American Families Plan uh, over the, the allotment of time uh, that, that decade. So that's 10 times the annual budget of the entire Department of Education. And then I would note too that this would come on top of the $260 billion the Department of Education had in its first infrastructure plan and on top of the $282 billion that schools received over the past 12 months through those three COVID spending relief packages. So again, you know, I, I keep using this word breathtaking, but it really is just a breathtaking sum of money uh, that we're seeing proposed uh, in both the, the American Families Plan and the prior infrastructure plan of what has already been spent over the past 12 months. So I would say, you know, in all the, the bottom line for this particular proposal, the American Families Plan, is that there really are very few aspects of family life that this plan does not try to replace with government services. And, you know, that is, I think, the core problem. The spending, of course, is an issue and the effect on uh, the push out of private providers in the pre-K space is an issue and even in the higher education space. But really at the core of the problem is that this is a plan that views government services as a replacement for these core family, uh, family life uh, provisions. So, uh, Andrea, I don't know if there's anything you want to add on the broader uh, plan, just your thoughts overall on both the spending and then the effect that this might have on, I think, family life generally. <laughs> you know, it's um, funny uh, in an ironic way that this is referred to as a family plan when, you know, it really does, as I said at the core, try to replace, you know, family life with all of these government services. Well, you know, I always have additional thoughts to add, but um, funding for spaces, first and foremost, is not funding for families. And so certainly there's research to show spaces sitting empty in Canada while we fund them. And um, so if, if uh, big spending is the goal, then money to families is, is money they can actually use. The other additional comment I'd make is my concern is that it's easy for any administration to make the big budget announcement. But what does that look like five years down the road or 10 years down the road when we have limited resources and we're in tons of debt? Um, so it's, it's for my experience here, you know, splashy announcements are all well and good, but there's a huge negotiation that has to happen between the federal government and our, our provinces. Um, Childcare is not federal jurisdiction. How do you implement this? I mean, there's huge obstacles to seeing this enacted in Canada, um, and some of those may exist in the states as well. But the bottom line is that who's left holding the bag when the money runs out at the federal level? They've already made their splashy announcement, and now there's not enough money to continue it. And my concern is that our children suffer because spaces and programs have been created. They're in them now. And um, but they're underfunded, so I think it's it's possible we end up with the worst of all worlds there. Um, and if we again want to spend a lot of money, then I would strongly argue for it to go straight to parents who can then choose what they'd like from their communities, or even use family care or whatever else it is that's preference their preference. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, and here in in our case, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that we already have a significant federal taxpayer commitment to early childhood education and care, not only in the form of Head Start, but there's the Child Care and Development Block Grant. We spend a lot of money every year at the federal level. And so those dollars, we should first look at 
making those sellers work better, making them portable, sending them directly to families to choose providers that are the right fit for them before creating brand new programs that are not likely to uh, meet the needs of families uh, because they're too rigid or uh, because there will be, to your point, access problems down the road uh, as well. So not to mention that we are saddling these uh, very children. We're trying to help with a tremendous amount of debt down the road. And so that should concern us all. Exactly. Well, yeah. Andrea, thank you. It is just fascinating to me to hear the parallels, uh, to hear this cautionary tale from, from Quebec, uh, not only for us, but as you noted, for the rest of Canada. So really appreciate you doing that deep dive with our listeners today. And I do want to note that uh, this is the policy pulse format that we're trying out. It's this quick 30-minute deep dive. I really like this format. I hope you enjoyed it as well. We have two more upcoming next week that are part of uh, our analysis of the Biden American Families Plan. We have one on welfare on Tuesday and then a second on the healthcare components of it on Thursday. I hope you'll join us then for that as well. Uh, thank you, Andrea, for joining us today. And thank you to everyone who tuned in. Really appreciate it.